On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, we discuss why many survivors have an addiction to their abusers. Plus, we catch up with former Survivor Story guest, Francesca. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with me today, it's just me. Well, it's not just me. The first half is just me, and then we have a follow-up with a former guest named Francesca, and that actually ties perfectly everything in this first half of the episode, in with her half, you just have to get there. It actually works. I don't know how it did, but it works. And this episode, what we had going on this week, uh, got canceled. So I thought to myself, uh, well, next week we're going to be having Ross Rosenberg on the show. And for those of you that don't know Ross Rosenberg, uh, he wrote the book, uh, the Human Magnet Syndrome. He coined the term self-love, self-love deficit. He uh, knows narcissism and codependency like the back of his hand. He's an expert in these subjects, and we're having him on next week. We're going to talk about his life and what he's been working on recently. We're going to be talking about narcissism, obviously. And I guess before he came on, I said to myself, well, what kind of subject can fit in this week that goes in with next week. And in a way, you know, when we talk about a self-love deficit and we talk about the human, the human magnet syndrome, when I look at things, I look at things through an addiction lens a lot of the time. And in a way it's very related to what he does. So I thought I would kind of discuss this in, in, I guess, a full detail where I, I, I usually throughout different episodes, I'll always be touching on this kind of subject. We touch on love bombing here. We touch on belief systems here and there. So I thought, why not just do like this full roundup here and and add in some extra things? And, oh, by the way, everyone, if you want, just uh, out of nowhere, uh, if you want to be a guest on our Survivor Story episodes, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page is a button that says guest form. Read all the instructions. Fill out the guest form or send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com. And now back to what I was saying about uh, addiction, about love bombing, and everything that we're going to be discussing today. So I thought the best place to start today was with a description of love bombing or what the definition would be. So the definition of love bombing is... An attempt to influence another person with over-the-top displays of attention and affection. And this can be like overly romantic conversation, over-the-top romantic conversation, uh, uh, talking about your future, future faking, and other things that go in here besides words and deeds would be excessive compliments, spending early on, spending way too much time together, just way too soon, constant gifts, constant texting, emailing, calling many times a day, asking you to spend time with them rather than with friends. Mirroring your interests is a really big thing. Excessive interest in your background, your life in your interests, and wanting to take things to another level very quickly. And when it comes to love bombing, it's done as a way to override all of your other senses that might be telling you, hey, this isn't a great idea. Everything's just so overwhelming. It's, it's excessive. That's the point of it. But at the same time, it's also creating an, an addiction. So before we get full-on addiction here and into a little bit of belief systems, a little trivia tidbit that I ran across was the actual, I guess, beginning of the terms, uh, uh, the term of love bombing, which started in cults and in new religious movements. And it was popular, popularized in a phrase uh, from a book from a Margaret Singer. And the book was called Cults in Our Mist. And 
there was a passage in there uh, about the parallels of love bombing and cults. And this is what the paragraph said. As soon as any interest is shown by the recruits, they may be love bombed by the recruiter or other cult members. This process of feigning friendship and interest in the recruit was originally associated with one of the early youth cults, but soon it was taken up by a number of groups as part of their program for luring people in. Love bombing is a coordinated effort, usually under the direction of leadership, that involves long-term members flooding recruits and newer members with flattery, verbal seduction, affectionate but usually non-sexual touching, and lots of attention to their every remark. Love bombing, or the offer of instant companionship, is a deceptive ploy accounting for many successful recruitment drives. So I found that little tidbit interesting and maybe something no one ever heard before. So you can see how, you know, with, with this statement, how cults would bring people in and, and, and how they, and how they did it. And it, it was used here as, as the term right there was instant companionship. I found that term to be really interesting. And I guess instant companionship or things along those lines can become uh, addictive. And it's creating this feeling inside you that you'll always be chasing. And it's just like the first time you take a, some types of drugs, you're, you get this initial feeling and then you're, you're hooked on that feeling and then you're always chasing that feeling. And the person who gives you those drugs, who gives you that feeling, can give you them and then they can take them away. And I think... If you've been a long-time listener of the show, you've heard me and others, Vienna as well, mention the Enneagram personality test. So the reason I give the Enneagram personality test is because I want to know as much about the guest as possible. I want to know the ins and outs of the guests, what their motivations are, what their fears and desires are, because it helps me do a better show. You know, people might question why I ask the psychology of the person. Some people might think that's victim blaming, but I'm not victim blaming. What I think of, big mandate of the show is is to help people build a better boundary fence after they've listened to the show or they've been a guest on the show so knowing as best as possible someone's psychology before i start talking to them helps me with questions it helps me listen better what to listen for or look for and helps me help the other person maybe unearth things they haven't really unearthed before, especially if the Enneagram is new, especially if inner work or healing work in that aspect is, is new for them to build this better boundary fence in the future, because we're all here to learn and educate ourselves, not just about, you know, the person who we tell these stories about, about the abuser and the signs to look out for. But ultimately, what I would like is that people can listen and learn and when they are in their healing process to be able to what I call or what's called transcending your type, which is like for me, I'm someone who has so much anxiety and uh, security issues that one day I just don't want to have it anymore. And to be able to like, look at these things from um, these psychological viewpoints is, you know, eventually I'll discuss in a second, like these are some things that people can attach to that are abusive people and exploit and use them as a way to, you know, kind of feed you your drugs in some ways and then take them as ways, take them away as well. So I just want to say that these things are just really helpful. 
I believe, and the Enneagram to me is a really good tool uh, to use. And I'll have a in the show notes uh, a little thing that you can click on, and you can be able to take a free test, and then hopefully we can all be part of this community to heal, move forward uh, together, and maybe start off at a place where uh, helping others under helping ourselves understand each other better can help us in the future and help us in our relationships in the future uh as as well and um like a side note i gave my sister one uh to take a test to take not that long ago and she took it for her first time she'd never heard of it and she got hers and she said oh my god this book understands me better than anyone this test understands me better than anyone uh ever has and i always found that uh, to be really interesting and to be able to help people explore that and grow and move forward is something I uh, want to be a part of as well. So so the Enneagram has nine types and there's a bunch of subtypes, but we will not get into the subtypes today because that's going to get really confusing and I'm not smart enough to do that on my own. I would need Vienna here to help me. And eventually we will do an episode when it comes to everything Enneagram. But when it comes to these types, everyone has a basic desire and everyone has a basic fear and everyone has key motivations, all depending on what your type is. And why I like to use this is because this is a lot of the time, not all the time, but a lot of the time, this is what an abuser might be feeding into or might be exploiting. And when we hear someone say, I, I was seen, a lot of the times, these are the things that are being seen. These desires are what's being seen. These fears are, are, are what's being seen. You know, if someone's feeling worthless and someone um, sees the worth in you for the first time, you're being seen for the first time. These are, see, these are real core identity things that an addiction can be created from. And if you are lower on a health rung, I will say, as far as your self-esteem goes, and these things are being seen, they're really easy to then take away. And, you know, the healthier someone is, the more self-worth someone has, usually your boundary fences is pretty good. And not to say that someone who has good boundaries can't fall prey to these things. They can, but it takes a lot more finessing, if that makes sense. So as an example, we'll maybe use a couple examples here because I'm not going to go through all of the Enneagram types, but the most common one that is on our show, or at least in the last little while, has been an Enneagram type 2. And an Enneagram type two is called the helper. And the helper is a generous, people-pleasing type of person. Uh, they base, their basic desire is to feel loved. Their basic fear is, is being unwanted, unworthy, uh, being unworthy of being loved. So... Uh, you know, one of their key motivations is to want to be loved. So as you can see, for someone who is like this and, and for people saying, doesn't everyone have this need? Uh, obviously, people want to, to be loved and, and love is a big thing, but they're a specific type of person where this is a real big void in their life because of how they were brought up. And it's uh, a, a thing that they're uh, that this certain type is always trying to fill. And as you can see with this one specifically with the love bombing, how easy it would be to use words of affection for these people to be seen, for you to give them self-worth and then for it to be taken away. So that is, is, is this type. This one is the, the easiest one to show and probably really the most common one uh, of, of the victims or survivors that we have on the show. Uh, and then we have another one where let's use um, 
someone like the type six. That's me. So a type six, anxious, responsible, engaging, suspicious. That's me. Would you know I was suspicious? Yes, I am. And uh, my basic desire, the six's basic desire, which is called the loyalist, is to have security and support. The basic fear is being without support or guidance. Uh, and reliability, as I said before, up, up there is a responsibility. Reliability is a big thing to me. That's part of security. So a lot of my core identity comes from being reliable. And if someone were to reinforce, you know, being reliable to me, but also being reliable themselves, that I could rely on them, that they're there for me and all those things, that person can really get into my good graces that, you know, that is like just a really big thing for me to feel supported in that way. It's not being, being supported in love is two different things to me. That's why I say that there's like a nuance to these things, but having someone who is uh, supportive and reliable and then building up my own um, identity of being reliable and then kind of poking at that as if I wasn't would only then in one turn want me to jump over the boundary fence to prove that I'm reliable uh, in, in, in many ways, because you can see how that can get me into trouble. And if the person pulls away their liability, their reliability and support while that's going on, all of a sudden someone like me would be in a real big no man's land. And I wouldn't know up from down or left from right. That is where someone can really get my core identity reinforce it and rip it away. And then all of a sudden I'm grabbing at straws. Someone I might have on a pedestal is seems miles away. And then there, I might also be getting needled as far as my reliability goes. So I start doing things for people, uh, not because I want to, because at that point I feel it's expected to, to get that support, and reliability back. It's the only way I could feel my way through it. So you can see how that can get someone in trouble. There's seven more types of these. We'll go through another full episode on that. But these are just a couple of examples of how you know an abuser can give these like core identities to you as a drug to feed you as an addiction and then take it away. And then it's something you're just lost and trying to find. And that becomes a really big trouble. And once you're an addict, I mean, game over. Now you have to start and trying to figure out where is my bottom. And you have to get to a bottom a lot of the time before you can get better. And that comes to a point where I like to say I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. You have to get to that point where things sometimes get so bad that you can't deal with it anymore, that the pain is too much and the high you're getting from the good is not as good anymore. It just isn't there. And that's usually a point where people finally have enough to at least try and start making moves to wean themselves off of drugs and then wean themselves in in a relation to this out of the, the relationships. So for some reason, I said the word drugs really weird there. I apologize. It just popped out of nowhere like I was surprised. My, my apologies. That was odd. Anyway, um, you know, once you're in this relationship and the love bombing has happened, trust building has occurred, and trust building being a really interesting, I think trust building, you hear a lot when it's the type of abusive person that is... The con person, the con man, who's really doing the long haul. A lot of the times they're doing things behind the scenes. So they're building trust. They're doing a lot of things that are trust-based, not necessarily love-based, I would say. 
and it's like a it's a sleight of hand they want to do. They might be after your money. They might be trying to get a free ride while you know pretending that they're going to be reliable and someone that works a lot. And really, they're just at home. There's all different types of uh, of the con men, but they're they're big on on the trust building and using uh, the trust aspect of things. I said trust way too much there. So I want everyone to start looking at their relationships in these narcissistic abuse relationships, or as I at least look at them through this, uh, this addiction lens. And when it comes to addiction and your abuser, you have to look at your abuser as the drugs and the drug addicts. So they're able to give you these love bombs, these words of affection, these uh, gifts, uh, you're being seen. So they can give you these things and then take them away. And that's the big key here because once you're an addict and the drugs are taken away, you start really wanting those drugs. And once that is inside you, whatever boundaries you had are gone. And I really want you to think about that and think about it in those terms. Because when you look at it in that way, in my opinion, it takes a lot of blame out of it. It takes a lot of shame out of it because there is no shame or there is no blame here on you at all. A situation has been created where, just like they say, a drug dealer gives drugs for the first time for free to get you hooked. And once you're hooked, they have you. The same thing is going on here. And there's no shame of being love bombed and everything that they've done because what they're doing is they're overriding your senses. And once your senses are overrided, they can then take the drugs away. And once those drugs are away your boundaries start to fall away. So in this case, look at it in terms of you are going about your relationship, a, an event happens, an abusive event happens, and then to shore that up, they give you uh, the fix of, of their affection or something along those lines back that you need. You get that back, it's shored up. And they're testing a boundary. They're seeing... Um, will that work? And then they do it again. And, and obviously this isn't always a conscious thing. It's, it could be subconscious on their part. And again, it, it can happen again where uh, it's taken away and uh, maybe something fixes it pretty quickly. And they're, they're really trying to, they're, they're testing to see what works, what doesn't work. And over time, they can figure out pretty much the ins and outs of, of what works and, and what doesn't work. And usually, as Ross Rosenberg would say, that there's a perfect match for everyone in these things as far as the um, human magnet syndrome. And over time, they can figure out, you know, I don't always have to give things back right away. It becomes a thing where if I really want the drugs or I want that fix, sometimes I'll do anything to get that fix. At first, you might not because you're, you're a drug addict, but you're not a big drug addict yet. But the deeper you go into a relationship, sometimes, you know, you might start to step even over a boundary line to go in and get that. It might make you look crazy. These are the things that kind of start happening, which can then work against you that really get you twisted around in the crazy making. There's gaslighting in there, but that's how it kind of or the addiction aspect of things starts off and then takes off and, and can really uh, be used to eventually twist you around, especially if uh, you start crossing over that boundary line to get the fix that you need. So when you look at things through that lens and you're trying to leave and it just becomes really hard and you're, you might be embarrassed that it's taking you six times to leave, seven times to leave, seven times to leave, eight times, nine times. You might have shame about that, but there is no shame. You know, try quitting drugs cold turkey. It's not easy. It's not possible. I've been there. I've relapsed. 
I've done a, a many different things. And quitting cold turkey with and do, trying to do it by yourself, no support, they call that white knuckling it. It's not an easy thing to do. There are some people that can do it. Some people can. But a lot of the time, what happens, and when it happens specifically, you know, let's say you're a drug addict and you're, you know, at a certain point, the drugs are working for you. It's working for you until eventually they stop. And once they stop working, you know, you tell yourself you want to stop. You want to, you want to quit. You need to quit. But there's a certain point until your body just says, okay, it's time. Like things have gotten so bad. You're sick and tired of being sick and tired. You're, you're at its real, real low. Like the next step is something really, really bad. At that point, when you're an addict and you're trying to get better, I always say that feeling, remember that feeling. Bottle that feeling. Yes, it's a terrible feeling to bottle. But in my opinion, it's a necessary feeling to bottle. Because that's the feeling you want to feel when you're going to get hoovered back. You want, you, when someone is going to try and hurt hoover you back with kind words, with a gift, with feeding into your basic fear, your basic desire, or, or fishing in, in that manner. Try and recall that terrible feeling and sit in that feeling, sit in it for a while. And when you're able to do that and recall that, it re might repel things. But that's why I say think of these things in the addiction terms because it's so similar. The parallels are so, sim the parallels are so similar that it's really helpful. And the other thing to think of when it comes to the addiction aspect of everything is doing the work. And as I said, some people are able to just quit cold turkey, but that's not most of us. Most of us need to go to AA meetings. Most of us need to go to GA meetings. That's Gamblers Anonymous or Codependence Anonymous meetings. And you have to go to meetings. You have to do the work. There's work to be done every single day. Because when you don't do the work, that's when a relapse can happen. So, you know, doing the work might be meditating. It might be doing yoga. It might be doing those little things. It might be going and talking to people or joining support groups. These are parts of the work that are needed. And it's something that uh, you have to do every day. Journaling. And you don't, because one of the other things is you don't want to get back into a relationship with someone like this. And in the process of everything, when you're dealing with uh, getting back into relationships, you have to do the work so you can build a better boundary fence. So we have to go backwards and back to where we were at the beginning of this conversation. And at the beginning of this conversation, we were talking about the Enneagram, we were talking about basic fears and desires. We were, we've talked about boundaries and boundary fences. And in my opinion, you know, as far as the healing process goes in all of this is you have to build a better fence at the end. And a lot of that is education. A lot of that is recognizing what might be going on at the same time. And a lot of that is self-worth and self-love. Or as Ross Rosenberg, who will be on the show next week, calls it the self-love deficit. And we have to figure out ways to value ourselves and fix that. And it's not to say, we're not to shame anyone or guilt anyone that you know, these things can happen to anyone. But for the most part, and this is not 100% everyone, so please don't send me emails. But for the most part, people had certain things that could be taken advantage of and you had a perfect match. And we want to fix that. We want to transcend. You know, part of this podcast isn't just to validate people, share your experiences, help people move through what's going on, deal with trauma. But uh, I would love people to bounce off this show and start 
looking at their lives and become better versions of themselves. You know, you went through a terrible thing and to bypass that and not do work after and grow as a person out of it would be a really big crime to me. So to look at yourselves and to say, hey, I think I can do better here. I can do better there. Because that's all we're kind of striving for is to not have these things happen again. And and to do that is to really understand the ins and outs of um, how we got here, why these love bombs worked, why these trust building things worked, why we have these belief systems. Are these belief systems helpful to me? Where did they get me into trouble? How can I fix them? And then to feel less shame and guilt about everything because um, you were an addict and there's no shame in being an addict. And you might not have been an addict in uh, other circumstances, but someone came in and found the perfect way to dispense drugs to you when you might not have been looking for drugs in the first place. And I guess that can also be said for people who have uh, a surgery and after the surgery, they have pain. They weren't looking to be drug addicts, but they were giving these pain pills and all of a sudden they got hooked. In a strange way, that's the same thing that happened to you. And there's no shame about it. There's no guilt about it. Uh, I've said this uh, th- those lines a lot during this episode, but that's how I really feel. And um, I think that's it. I think that's all I really wanted to say for this episode. It's a shorter episode. I'm going to attach to the end of this episode a little bit of a conversation I had as a follow-up with a former guest. So uh, really just want to thank everyone for listening and be a part of the show and that we just all grow and heal together. And that is it. So thank you. And next week uh, you'll hear my conversation with Ross Rosenberg. And I hope you like that a lot as well. So here is my new conversation with an old guest, Francesca. Hi, everyone. It is Brandon, and I am here with Francesca, who was a guest on our show uh, October 19th, 2020. So we're coming up on two years soon. It's over a year and a half. So uh, just give everyone, first of all, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. And we refound each other on TikTok of all places. <laughs> and so give everyone just a sh- who has never listened to your episode, because some people don't go that far back uh, until they're prompted to, but before they hear someone's story like yours again. So give people like a, a little uh, bit of, of uh, what your whole story was about and what's happened since, because I know a lot has happened even like I, I remember right after you were on the show, you gave me an update of, of things that were going on back then, but we hadn't done updates yet. So start somewhere with what I said, because I don't even remember what I even said. <laughs> sure. Um, so, yeah, I um, was on the show in October of 2020, and I told you my whole story about having just been divorced from my husband of almost 10 years. And he had cheated on me. But then I met somebody pretty quickly afterwards who was uh, who the episode was about. And he turned out to be, um, over time, probably the most controlling person I would ever come to know. Um, He abused me in every way you could possibly think of financially, emotionally, physically, sexually, and Um, basically every way you could think of. And probably the biggest takeaway that people will get if they do listen to my show or my episode would be um, that uh, I was in a basically a course of control type relationship that was prison-like. I didn't really have any say in anything I did or anything I wore, anything I was able to eat, drink, watch on TV, um, I was controlled by my phone. I was controlled by cameras. I was literally controlled in every way that you could possibly imagine. So that was basically the gist of my um, episode. And also after 
the relationship ended with him, there was stalking for a very long time, probably more than a year and a half of stalking that I had to endure. Even after you and I stopped the the episode um, shortly after I had gone to court for my final restraining, restraining order, which I did end up getting, but even afterwards, um, he continued to stalk me and harass me and in ways that I couldn't prove. So it was very difficult for me um, to get any help with it from the police because it was unprovable things like calling me from blocked numbers or um, private numbers or just any kind of numbers that he could possibly come up with to call me from. Leave me three or four minute voicemails, which would mainly be songs. He It was sort of creepy to listen to, like three or four minutes worth of, actually it stops at three minutes every voicemail is time limit is three minutes so it was a lot of of that a lot of just sighing and breathing on the voicemails yeah so for me that was a really difficult thing also because I had gotten new phone numbers and he somehow was able to still get those numbers so that happened as soon as I left him I think my boss at the time had brought me immediately to the store to get me a new phone because we realized that I was being tracked so I think um, I changed my number that time and one other time after that, and somehow was, he was still able to get it. I don't know how. Um, to this day, I don't know how. And honestly, you know, it, what does it matter at this point? So, <laughs> but anyway, so after, so the, the, I guess what I wanted to share was during the restraining order trial, because sometimes this is helpful too. And I had, in hindsight, maybe the benefit of um, going through a restraining order trial probably took a matter of like three days in total because there were so many backed up cases and we were one of the last cases that our case got adjourned several times. So in hindsight, I had the benefit of listening. It's not very private. Um, I don't know if anyone else has the same experience, but you get to listen to literally everyone else's case that goes before you and hear the judge decide whether or not they want to grant the restraining order. And like, it kind of made me really nervous just because I'm listening to all these other cases and realizing that it's not that easy to get. Like I felt like there were so many people who did have all of this proof. They had videos, they had this, and the judge was very, um, they, he, he didn't really give out the restraining orders readily. It wasn't like, Oh, definitely immediately on every single case where I probably would have given it if it were me. But so I had the, um, the, you know, the, the, the good luck of being able to listen to everybody's first, but also it gave me anxiety because then I was worried that I wasn't going to get mine. Um, so it was funny. It was in a zoom situation, like where, you know, you're on camera cause it was during COVID and um, basically he had, he was in his kitchen and he had all of like, and I'm familiar with his house because I used to live there. Um, but he had pictures of his kids like set up behind him on, <laughs> It was sort of like he was sitting in an Oval Office type situation. He had pictures of the kids sitting behind him. He was had his dog sitting next to him, and he was, like, petting his dog. And so it was trying to make himself look like this, such this innocent, like, man. And he had this such a somber look on his face. And, like, and so I was like, oh, my gosh. So he's really just trying to set this up. Like, he's just so innocent. And, uh, you know, he kind of went through. Uh, all of these things during the trial, he represented himself, whereas I had an attorney, um, which was great also, but he represented himself and he was able to go through all of his fake evidence where he made up emails. Um, he basically made it out to be that we had some type of a BDSM relationship that I was like this uh, um, person who really wanted him to treat me this way. <laughs> and it was um, a sexual turn on for me to be talked down to and all this stuff which was completely untrue. He had emails. So basically he set up an email account, like a Gmail account that was like my first name and something else, but it's not my email. Right. So, but he writes all these emails saying that it's from me if from this account. Obviously it looks like my account, but it wasn't, he has them up on the screen. Basically it was just this public shaming, like <laughs> public embarrassment for me. Like, cause now you're on camera. There's all these other people watching that are waiting for their case to happen. My attorney, who now thinks I'm probably lying to him um, because there's all these emails up on the screen or whatever from me that don't, aren't really from me. 
So he got caught up in some lies, which was great. So um, they, the judge listened to him and I for probably about two hours. It was really long. And um, I had a lot of evidence against him um, harassing me. I had over 400 emails. I had over um, a, three or 400 voicemails. I had a lot of evidence. He had come up to my door and taped things to my door. So I had Zoom um ring doorbell footage of that. So, um, and things that he even sent me written in the mail, one of which he said um, something along the lines of, uh, I'm not sure if you're getting all of my voicemails and, and emails, so I'm going to write you this instead. And he wrote this long sort of apology um, for all the things he had done. And, um, and the judge kind of called him out on him when he gave his um, statement at the end. So, the judge started to say that he made the hair on the back of his neck stand up with some of the things that he said. And I just started crying. And, and I was like, wow, because I was nervous. I thought that the judge wasn't going to believe me because of what he was saying and everything. And the judge really just called him out and said, you make me terrified, basically. And if I was her, I'd be terrified of you. And, and he granted the restraining order. And I was like, so happy it just felt so um i don't know i know it's not a safety net right but it's it's also something it's something that you can have that makes you feel slightly better that you have some sort of fallback if if you are in a situation where that person shows up um let's say to my job or when i'm out with my kids somewhere and he's there i can call the police and and have something done about it immediately. And he would be arrested if he didn't try and leave the situation immediately. So that made me feel a lot better. Um, so that was what happened immediately after our episode aired. And I think that's what I had emailed you about, too. I was pretty excited about that. So um, I think I had mentioned earlier that as we, you know, after the restraining order was granted, he still was leaving the voicemails, but from blocked numbers and things like that. So I couldn't prove it. I tried several times to prove it. He had hacked into my LinkedIn account, changed my photo to a, a photoshopped photo of me that made me look um, very scantily dressed. And um, I had over 300 work contacts that, that had that LinkedIn account and he hacked into it and like put this like really um, horrific, you know, profile picture and this description of me that I couldn't take down because I couldn't get into the account myself. Um, and I couldn't change it because all of the password information was linked to his account. So if I tried to recover my passwords, all of that recovery information would be sent to him and not me. So I had to call like LinkedIn to get them to um, basically take the account down. They were like, oh, are you sure you want it taken down? Which wasn't easy. I had to, it's not easy to get in touch with LinkedIn <laughs> to get your account taken down. So I eventually got that taken down. Um, but yes, he continued to call for several months. That was October. And I think the last time he called me was in July of 2021. And that was, um, so what had happened was that he had accidentally called me from his actual number. <laughs> and um, he said, so that time it went through on his phone number. So I had proof on my phone that he actually called me. So I called the police immediately and told them about it. And he had already called the police to tell them that he accidentally butt dialed me. So the police um, gave him a reprieve and didn't arrest him, but they also gave him a warning and said there will be no more accidental contact and this will be the last time. And actually after that point in time, to my knowledge, I have never heard from him again. So I think that was his um, sort of like, I don't think he realized that how seriously I was taking it, that I would have jumped and called the police immediately. So once he found out that that happened and I was willing to send the police directly to him immediately when that happened, that he um, finally realized that there probably wasn't any re repairing the relationship. I think his um, voicemails with the songs were his way of trying to like woo me back, like thinking that I was sitting there listening to them, thinking how romantic it was that he was sending me these songs. But here I am thinking, what a nut. Like, he is so creepy that he sits there and does this five, six, seven, eight times a night. And for three, four minutes straight, it's like, I, I just, I couldn't fathom him thinking that. But that's what my thought is, that he thought that 
he was wooing me back, um, but he didn't realize that I was going to just call the cops immediately as soon as I had some way of proving that he tried to contact me. And as far as trauma goes and your healing process, at a certain point, are were you able to or are you able to to get to that point because you were living on edge for so long? Um. So yeah, it's a it's a process. <laughs> I don't think that um, I don't think it's ever just gets better with time. I think that it's about the effort you put in. Um, and I don't think it'll ever go away because there's definitely a lot of times where you feel like you're still traumatized from it and it could be a place it could be a voice it could be a smell it could be anything and you're just frozen and put back in the position that you were so I think um yeah the therapy helps and talking about it helps and I actually think being on that episode I thought it was really healing I think the more times you tell somebody your story the more healing it is because walk around with this dirty secret like trapped in you for so long because in my situation I wasn't telling anybody about what was happening to me the whole time through the four-year relationship and then afterwards it was sort of this like shame around it for me like where I felt so embarrassed that it had happened um so the more times you tell it it sort of eliminates the power and the shame that it has over you so I think it's very helpful to talk about it, even though it can be um, traumatizing, like you re-traumatize yourself a little bit from it. But I think saying it out loud and sharing it and thinking to yourself that, because for me, listening to your show, even before I left my abuser, I was listening to your show. And, um, and I think listening to other people say their stories makes you feel so validated because it's like wow this is happening to so many people and um knowing that maybe somebody listened to my episode and thought the same thing is also very healing because it makes you feel like something good came of it you know something something good came out of what happened to me and maybe if it's just one person that it could help that that um it just makes you feel a lot better about it and knowing that um that it wasn't just all for nothing and as far as, I guess, reclaiming things or the things you feel like you might have lost um, internally as far as being in that prison for so long, uh, what is the biggest thing that you'd be working on um, that, you know, that you really want back in your life again? Um, gosh, it's hard to say one thing, but... Yeah, so the basically what what happened to me made me not have any power over myself at all for that amount of time. And you wouldn't think that because I'm 44 years old that those four years out of 44 total years would have totally changed everything that you think and everything that you do. But but honestly, it does. Um, and those four years were so impactful that it really did um, install this, um, it brainwashed me in, in so many ways. And and so coming out of it, it was sort of like I didn't even know where to start and reclaiming, even just being able to sit quietly and just not be worried about, um, am I doing the right thing? Am I saying the right thing? Am I sitting the right way? Am I taking up too much space? Are my kids doing something that he's going to disapprove of? Um, you know, just so many different things run through your head when you're in an abused relation, abusive relationship that you just never rest mentally. So just the rest and being like, and now when I'm by myself, I just feel like this is so nice. <laughs> I just love the alone time. I think it's so nice to have it and to like sort of self-reflect and, um, even now, like in those quiet times, I can think about what happened to me and and feel comfortable that I, I'm healing from it and feel like I'm not worried that um, something bad will happen to me. Um, I think also, like, I realized after the, relation, the, the relationship ended and had some time to think about it, I think even after you and I spoke, I just realized the danger that I was in afterwards. and. 
I didn't, I sort of blocked it out while I was in it. (laughs) And now I think about it and I think, wow, that was a really scary situation. And um, so just going through that um, and, you know, repairing myself from worried about being in physical danger is a really tough thing because you, you, I was constantly looking over my shoulder and I still do when I come home at night, I, which is a good thing because you learn from it, right? You double check everything, my surroundings. I look around my house to see if anything has changed that stands out to me. I, um, I get, I, I do, I'm more, a lot more cautious. Um, and then also just, my relationships with my family members, because I didn't have one during the time of the relationship um, with my abuser. He isolated me completely from my whole family. Um, he made my relationships at work very difficult because he brainwashed me to think that my work relationships were detrimental to my womanhood. And, you know, if I ate lunch, that I would be fat. And if I um, you know, hung out with those girls who didn't care about their husbands, that it would make me not care about him. And if I was like, um, laughing too much at inappropriate jokes, that I would have this addiction to inappropriate behavior. Or if we talked about those that he didn't like, that it would be something like, it's just basically literally every little thing that I did was so micromanaged that, um, you know, those relationships were really sort of non-existent. So it's been a long haul trying to repair them. And also spending time with my kids. I I wasn't really able to have for those four years any time like comfortably relaxed with my own children. And so that's been a real blessing that having that time with my kids and 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 being able to enjoy them again and then being able to enjoy me because I just wasn't an enjoyable person to be with during that time. I was so worried about everything that he would think and say and do that. I was basically like the shell um, who was just constantly on high alert, just worried about what was going to happen next. So I think I was just not a fun or enjoyable person to be with during that time. So I think my kids are happy to have a human mother back again, which is nice. So it, your episode right here is going to be stitched together with an episode um, for tomorrow. And uh, the episode, uh, it's a Q&A episode that we discussed. You know, it was kind of like love bombing, but the addiction and everything that formed uh, within you and how the addiction eventually starts running you. And for you, you know, you became a different person in a way. It, it was a fear-based kind of addiction, but um, to kind of bring it around to how the other episode, the other part of this episode was going, what was, I guess, the biggest thing as far as the barrier fence for you or the thing that uh, your abuser attacked most to, um, I guess, feed into a hole that might have been missing into you? And then is that the same thing that they started taking away to twist, to start twisting you around? Uh, yeah. So it definitely feels like an addiction because you feel like that person has set you up to believe that you can't live or exist without them, which is the same, I guess, as an addiction. Thank God I've never had to deal with addiction otherwise. But yes, I feel like it is very similar to an addiction or even more so like in my opinion, like a cult, like it's like a cult of two, right? Like there's like, you're the follower and they're the leader. Um, and I felt like, um, the things that drew me in and in the love bombing stage, and for me, the love bombing was continuous, but it was cycled, right? So it was cyclical where there'd be this love bombing and then the abuse and then, and then the, you know, quiet phase. And then again, the love bombing and then the abuse. And then, so it was constant, like, uh, it could be even on a daily basis or an hourly basis, the cycle could have run. So, but my abuser love bombed me really, really, really well. And he, and he talked and listened and like, um, you know, I came from a marriage where that wasn't really the case, like where we didn't really have like these deep, deep conversations and we didn't, um, he didn't really listen that much to me or even like, tell me that I was gorgeous or that I was sexy or beautiful. And so 
when somebody does all that and listens and wants and wants to talk, like he would want to, like he would turn the TV off and like be like, let's talk, you know, <laughs> and like lean in and like just have like this deep conversation where it was like, wow, like this is great. I've never had this because I feel like I don't want to generalize, but I feel like most men, especially ones that I probably dated, that wasn't something that most men I find really find enjoyable. Um, you know, they like to have conversations, but it's never usually that long and and as deep as what he was doing so it felt very like nice to have that kind of connection with somebody where it was that and then also sexually like he just always during that love bombing phase was very sexually attracted to me and very sexually um charged all the time so it was like I can't wait till you get home because I I just been thinking about you all day and you know that kind of thing so it was just very much like this it was addicting in that it made me feel so good, you know, it made me feel like I was so desired and so wanted and so appreciated. But during the devaluing phase or the abuse phase, um, those things would go completely away. <laughs> they would go completely the opposite direction. I could be um, the most gorgeous thing on the planet in one minute and then the next minute be the fattest, grossest bitch he's ever seen in his entire life. And um, so, yeah, it's definitely the giving and then the taking away. And it's making you feel like, what happened? What did I do? How did I like, how did this happen? You know, because it, it could happen so quickly and just throw you off kilter so much that you're like, what did I do? And then the question, when you ask that, what did I do? It's, you know what you did. <laughs> I don't even have to tell you what you did. Think about it. Think about what you did. And it's like, okay. And then you're trying to think. and in my head, I'm thinking, oh, he probably thinks that I looked at somebody else, or he probably thinks that I, that somebody else talked to me when I went to the bathroom before, or, or, um, or he, he saw a text from a number pop up on my phone that he didn't know who it was or whoever, like, or with him, he baited people all the time. I mean, he, he baited people. He would try and contact people from my past to see if they would talk to me and then bait that a fight from the response that he would get from this other person. So I didn't know if that something like that was happening or if it was something I didn't clean well enough or um, something that, um, you know, I, he tracked my exercise routine. So maybe he thought that I didn't finish a workout or something like, like, I just couldn't imagine what it could possibly could. It could have literally been anything. So, yes, I think, yeah, I think there's a lot of validity to the addiction relationship with um, an abusive relationship. So before we end up, or end your, the uh, follow-up with everything that's going on, uh, once again, do you have any words of wisdom or advice for everyone listening? Uh, yeah, so I thought about this, and, and I know um, the first time around, I think I said something that's pretty commonly said, which is trust your gut. But, um, and I do still believe that wholly and full-heartedly that you should trust your gut, because I think that could save a lot of people from a lot, but... I think also um, this words of wisdom has probably been more recently learned in that I think that you can't um, you can't let this make you stop living your life in a good way. Right. Like you have to you have to take what you learned and twist it in a positive way and make it so that, wow, I'm kind of blessed that I went through this because now I know. I know that this person exists. I know that this type of person exists and I can help myself and other people not ever be in that situation. And if there's, you know, even being able to help my kids recognize this in someone else and pointing it out to them and saying like, if somebody's doing that to you, that's a red flag and you should be watching out for that. You know, there should be no doubt about it in your mind when, when you see it happening to someone else, it's like you develop this radar of knowing immediately. Like, I feel like I have this narcissist or abusive, toxic person radar now that as soon as a word comes out of someone's mouth, it triggers in my mind and I say, oh my gosh, no, that's a, not a good person. So I think it's almost a blessing in a way that you learn so much um, because we delve in, like, I think most of us delve into this research phase after you get out of the relationship where you're doing so much research on the subject and listening to so much information and reading so much information that now we have this um, arsenal 
of, of information that we can help other people and ourselves with. So I find it to like, I feel like you can't stop living your life. You can't go into a little hole and pretend like it, everybody in the world is just a horrible person. And I don't want to talk to anybody because you find also through this, that there's so many good and helpful people that want the best for you. And now you can easily weed them out. You can totally tell the difference between the good people and the bad people almost immediately for me. I feel like I can tell. So we were thinking of doing an episode where we're going to ask the question to multiple different survivors. If you could never go through this and not grow or not or just kind of go through life the way it was, or you could go through this and then learn all of these things that you might not have learned before, which would you choose? Uh, gosh, I mean, the easy answer is you choose to not go through it because it was so painful, right? But I think that the right answer for me would be that I would absolutely do it again. Because for me, it wasn't only like learning the knowledge of, of, you know, avoiding this type of situation again, but it was also like sort of a rebirth of myself internally that like now I, before I, I was such a people pleaser and I was such, um, you know, I had this like internal voice that kept saying that I was, um, you know, uh, that I wasn't deserving or that I wasn't, you know, I'm too boring. They're probably going to cheat on me and break up with me or something like that. But um, I think like you just have this change inside of you after you've been through it that just tells you if you don't like me, that's not my fault. It's your fault. And it's your, your problem, not my, you know, it's not a fault thing, but it's not my problem. And you don't have to like me. And I don't really, it doesn't affect me in any way. <laughs> and I think that's such a powerful thing to have inside yourself is to sort of move past caring so much about what other people think and start focusing on yourself and what you think about yourself and how you know yourself to be and really wrap your head around what your own values are and what matters to you in your own life. So I think that for me, it just was sort of like this trigger for change in my own internal way of thinking. And um, I don't think that I would change that. I think that I, I like I like the change more than I don't like what I went through. Did I ever, cause early on I wasn't giving you the Enneagram for people to take. Did I ever give you the Enneagram to take? Um, you didn't, but I had listened to the episode uh, with your friends who did it. And I did it on my own afterwards. You were a two. <laughs> I know I'm a two. <laughs> yes. I think I am a two. Yes. Do you know why? Well, the greatest thing is when you listen to this as a whole, I give an example early on in this is why, how a two could possibly be the stuff be used um, against them, their basic fear and desire. You just repeated all of those words in two seconds. And I was like, oh, you're a two. Oh, how funny. I think I was a two. And then like, the, I want to say maybe a nine was the second most one. I think it was a nine. You, you, you were in, in, that was the quickest read I've ever had. <laughs> So uh, once again, Francesca, thank you so much for being a guest on our show. Um, I hope everyone who's listening to this goes back and listens to Francesca's episode. Here's her whole entire story. And you made it here. You made it to the other side. And everyone's, again, just thankful for you being you and for helping everyone. Because that's it. Once again, you did that again. And people are going to re-listen to your story again. And they're going to, whoever hasn't listened to it yet, they're going to learn and they're going to be better for it. So thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. It was great again. And keep up the great work because I feel like it's just so helpful. And I think that the TikToks are kind of fun too. And I think that is another avenue to help people out. And I love that. I think um, even though it's a, it's a, you know, a, a, a bad pastime for myself to go sit and scroll through. <laughs> I think um, I, I enjoy the, the helpful things in there. And I think there's a lot of helpful things that are happening in TikTok too. And I've been trying to do um, ones where I incorporate something from like a TV show here or there. I had a I like Simpsons one. My one today with uh, the Titanic didn't do well. I removed it. Oh, really? Yeah, I, it, I, it, 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 it did not do well at all. Anyway, everyone, I'm getting off tangent here. We should, we should end this off. So 
So uh, before we end this, uh, if you want to be a guest on our show like Francesca was today, like she was in the past, please do go to NarcissistApocalypse.com, top of the page with the button that says Guest Form. Click on that button, read all the instructions, fill out our guest form, or send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com. Also at our website, we have our very own safe social network. At this network, we have our very own forum boards. We have Zoom meetings every Wednesday night and Saturday night and every other Thursday afternoon. Plus, we have ad-free episodes and episodes that never made it to air. And if you just want to support our show, please do join our support group. It helps us out a lot. And leave us reviews on Apple if you'd like. We'd like as many reviews as possible. It helps us out there as well. And if you need even more support, please do go to our friends at DomesticShelters.org. They have articles and resources that can help you work your way through things, have you understand a lot of things that are going on in the domestic abuse, domestic violence, narcissistic abuse space, coercive control, all those things. They can help you reach shelters, find resources that you need. So please do go to our friends at DomesticShelters.org. And... For myself and for Francesca for being our guest once again, we hope you have a good night.